From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Hi everyone, Justin Schreiber here. Today my guest is Gary Briggs, former CMO of Facebook. Gary's career has taken several twists and turns, but at each stage of his journey, he's left his mark. Whether he's building a bottled water business known as Aquafina for Pepsi, wrestling with Howard Schultz over the new product launches at Starbucks, or navigating the Russian election scandal of 2016 at Facebook, Gary has never been accused of playing small ball. On today's episode, he describes the chance encounters that changed the trajectory of his career, the unique challenges that social media has introduced into our society, and where he finds an abiding sense of purpose and meaning in life. Let's dive into the conversation. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks very much. Appreciate well, the invite. This is, is going to be a fun conversation. You cover an amazing breadth of territory in your career. I always though like to go back to the beginning and and start <laughs> with those early years and uh, some interesting facts that folks might not know about you as a kid. You were short, you were skinny, and yet you had the voice of a fifty year old. Right, uh, a a household uh, favorite in <laughs> my family is Rick Astley, so that's what oh, I'm kind of imagining. Yeah, you, you watch? Are you watching Ted Lasso by any chance? I'm not. No. Oh, there's a recent uh, uh, Rick roll. In, in Ted Lasso. So it's very timely. Yeah. A yes. couple episodes back. An iconic institution. So I'm imagining Rick Astley here <laughs> in my midst. How did that set you up from a social perspective as a kid? Well, I, as I would say to my friends at the time, I'm never going to give them up. I'm never going to let them down. Uh, no. <laughs> touche. Uh, touche. No, I, I, um, yeah, I, I've, I had this voice since I was about 12. But I graduated high school five 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 six. I, I wrestled 101 pounds when I was a sophomore in high school. I just I just grew late. My my mom was a school teacher, and um, I'm a December baby, so I was always young for my class. I just started school early, and graduated high school when I was 17. And I just didn't happen to grow until I was you know 17 and a half. One thing I remember, I'm, my there was a pharmacy near where. We lived that I would, you know, mom, when I started driving, would would have me go down and pick up, you know, medicines, whatever, you know, whatever we needed from the pharmacy. And it was one of those older pharmacies where they had a, you know, an index card with your account on it and everything like that. And then when I would go down to get things, they, they, I, sometimes they, they would want me to then call our house because they didn't trust that I was, you know, who was over the phone who then showed up in person. It just didn't seem to match. I mean, I'd have things like that happen. I had one time also, I went to a, uh, I remember very well, I went to a hardware store that had a lumber yard and I was getting stuff out of the lumber yard in the back of my dad's car. And the gate agent was not going to let me go because I didn't look old enough to drive like that, that kind of thing. So I've always uh, had that, and I think it. I think it had a real, yeah. I, I mean, analyzing myself, I think it had a real effect on me. I still think of myself 
as that age, I don't think of myself as, you know, six feet tall or now slightly shorter than that, given my age. But um, yeah, I just don't think of myself in that way. I think of myself as much more like I'm still 12 uh, in, in what, you know, formed my, my self view, I guess. I think that's a fascinating point. We see ourselves very differently than other people see them. And I agree with you there. There is a year that we always go back to, and it's almost like we're frozen in that year. And although Mm. we continue to grow and, and change and mature, there's a place in our mind where we're still that 12 year old. Yeah. I think there's certain ages that are very, very formative or foundational, um, that for some reason, and particularly in our households, because my brother and sister are both older. And so when I was about 12, uh, my sister was long out of the house and my brother was now out of the house. And I was the only, you know, became the only child at around that age too, which had, you know, pluses and minuses I can kind of get into. And then the other one, when, when I was at Pepsi, we used to talk about the fact that everybody wants to be 20. Um, because it's kind of a magical age where you're, you're old enough to be kind of a young adult, but young enough where you, you know, again, circumstances depend, but you may not have dealt with loss. You, you, you may have, but you may, you know, likely have not, you you may have dealt with love yet, or you may be in your first love. And there's just like a lot around those particular ages that, uh, I don't think we talk about them enough because they are so much the, the basis of then who I think we become. Yeah. I think that I go back to when I was nine years old, there's Mm. this absurdly bizarre memory that I have. We were washing our desks off. We had some kind of spray that we'd spray them down with, and there were no paper towels to wipe it off. And I was a pleaser as a kid. Mm. And so I'd sprayed my desk down and I couldn't wipe it off. And the teacher was was walking by. So I took my shirt. It was a brown turtleneck. And I used my shirt to wipe down my desk because I thought that would really impress the teacher. (laughs) And I look back now and I just shake my head. But there was something there where I wanted I wanted the teacher to say, man, that kid, he's on top of it. Industrious. Yeah, he's very industrious. (laughs) He's creative. Yeah. All right. So you were also obsessed with Watergate. Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, my dad was in advertising in media. And as one of the side parts of that is we had a lot of newspapers and magazines around the house, a lot of magazines. I read a lot of magazines and my dad, I used to, you know, we weren't particularly religious as a family. I used to call it the church of the Sunday New York times. Like we would, we would all hang around and I, I would take the remnants that my dad had, you know, put down on the floor from the the chair he he read in and I'd be on the floor reading, you know, the New York Times. So I, I got very interested in the news at a relatively young age. And in my lifetime, obviously, um, you know, one of the most uh, ground shaking things was Watergate. I, Watergate broke. Well, Watergate occurred when I was nine. And then the hearings and everything like that was when I was 11. Because, you know, it took, took a while, as you may know. So um, as these things sometimes do. And I just read it. I read it all. I watched the hearings on PBS and uh, and was really struck by the, you know, what they called at the time, the lions of the Senate, who, uh, you know, Sam Irvin, Howard Baker, um, and and just found it really, really interesting. And I knew, you know, I knew who Alexander Butterfield was and I knew, you know, listen to John Dean and all these people that became kind of legendary. My, my parents were met at one time. Uh, well, this is a very, very interesting side story. I didn't mentioned you when we spoke previously, John Mitchell, who was the attorney general who, who went to jail. My parents went on a cruise 
And on that cruise was Martha Mitchell, John Mitchell's wife, who, mm. who was one of the first to really be outspoken about what she had been seeing through her husband's you know, relationships and activities. And she had been literally put on a cruise ship to get her away from cameras and microphones. Wow. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. It's just so bizarre. Not as bizarre as some recent history. But um, anyway, I was really struck by Watergate. And it formed a lot of my interest in, you know, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer and certainly was interested in p- politics and government, which is then what I studied uh, in college, accelerated by the fact that I had a fifth grade teacher and an 11th grade teacher, actually now an eighth grade teacher, when I was doing kind of U.S. history or politics and government, who just played back to me that I seem to have a uh, innate interest in this and and you know capability in this, so I ought to pursue it. Yeah. Um, another interesting fact about you: you do not like yellers. We'll talk no. a little bit later on in in the interview about how you actually made explicit career decisions to avoid working for yellers. Where yeah. did that come from? Well, I, I alluded to it earlier, but you know, I very fortunate in lots of ways. My parents were extraordinary in, in lots of ways. But when I was in high school, when my brother and sister were out of the house, my parents were having marital problems. And there was a lot of yelling in the house. And it was hard. It was a super hard. It was one of the hardest times of my life. And, you know, I am a pleaser, as you mentioned earlier as well. And I was really put into the position of trying to help my parents save their marriage. Um, you know, without really any adults around because my parents, it was overly critical, but my parents weren't particularly acting like adults at the time. Um, that's a, that's a brutal way to put it, but probably not totally unfair either. And, and so that it really affected how I view, um, you know, it's visceral in, in lots of ways. So there's the personal part of it. And the other part of it is, I think it's, um, I think it's. I think people who yell like that in business are are certainly arrogant, um, but also lazy in the sense that they're using their power as a way to get others to do things rather than than using, uh, you know, argument and and you know empathy and and listening to others, uh, which I think is fundamental to me. I mean, I think one of the things that I care most about is is to the degree of which I see other people and, and recognize them themselves for who they are and help. And, and I find people who are yellers do none of that. And I, I find it's anathema to how I think people should carry themselves. That's a fascinating insight. I I've thought also about that dimension of arrogance, but your point about laziness is also well taken. It's hard to listen to someone's point of view, to work through with them, to be persuaded by them and change your own point of view. Ultimately, obviously, I think you come to better outcomes, but that takes work. It's a lot easier just to use yelling or or power as as a a blunt instrument to beat people into submission. Yeah, two two things on on that. Um, Well, I'll I'll go to one in particular. Um, Adam Grant, you know, who's a a writer, uh, pen prof, talks about givers and takers, and and um, you know, I didn't really read about that till much later in my career, but I think his insight is terrific, which is. You know, you have people in a two by two who are givers and takers and people who are agreeable and disagreeable. And I've had to learn with people who are disagreeable givers that they their interface is such that they could be irascible, but their ultimate intent is to make people around them, including themselves better, the situation better mm. versus agreeable takers who are more prevalent, particularly in California, passive aggressiveness. 
who, who are actually more dangerous to, to cultures. But I think a lot of it has to do with what is the, what's the motivation behind someone's action. And yeah. I would say to people I work with, look, if you can say anything to me, I don't really mind it as long as it's from your heart and, yeah. and, and not calculating, you know, and, and, you know, based in love rather than fear. And those are, those are the environments that I do best in. And as I went from being a manager to a leader, you know, those are the, uh, environments I, I would try to instill around me, but, you know, not always with great effect, but certainly tried. All right. So you head off to college inspired by the lions of the Senate. You have your <laughs> eyes set on Washington. Do why did you not end up in politics initially? Well, I I, I did ish. Uh, I I realized I didn't mostly realized I didn't want to be a lawyer. I had my first pre law class at Brown where I went, and everybody liked this one prof, and I found him a bit insufferable. So I didn't really take take to to pre law track as much. But I was a history, I was a poli sci and American history major in in college, and all summers I was in college, I worked in D.C. And then when I got out of college, I worked in D.C. I worked for, as a legislative aide for my congressman, and I found it just too slow. That was the issue. I just found the environment way too slow. Writing constituent correspondence, uh, the, 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 <laughs> as uh, is it scholaric, I guess, if that's the term, um, as Congress is today, um, uh, it was considered, you know, in the, in the 1980s, it was moving faster than it is now, um, actually. <laughs> Hard so to imagine. I, I cannot imagine what it's like to be a legislative aide now, but I just found it too slow and it got me. Um, and I realized I liked the race. I liked the, 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 the political races more than I liked the government governing part. Yeah. Um, but to, to flash all the way forward, I mean, I, I, I tried to get a job in the Biden administration and, uh, from more recent work I had done. And I was pretty much told given my Facebook history that I should probably not apply. So, um, that that was that's the latest to flash forward. We'll uh, we'll have we'll have some conversations about Facebook, but certainly an interesting uh, background and fascinating experiences there. So uh, so as an aside, I always like to ask the Brown alum, can you name three other schools in the United States that are named after colors? Oh, interesting. Um, I I don't think I can actually <laughs> hit hit me. All right, so Sienna. Oh Auburn. Jesus. Uh, okay, Auburn. Yeah. <laughs> and then this one is a stretch, but I, whoever came up with this, I give them props for creativity. Navy. I think that's all brilliant. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, I will use there that. There you go. The next time is, you're at a is reunion. Sienna, is Sienna spelt as the color? I don't, I don't know. Uh, you're asking the wrong guy about spelling. <laughs> Auburn's, about... Auburn's brilliant because I, I, you know, as when you asked the question, I was going black, white, you know, red, you know. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a great one. So the next time you're at a reunion, there you go. That's the that's All the right. icebreaker. I'll, I'll win. I'll win the uh, the bar contest on that. All right. So serendipity is a theme I think that follows you through your career and started off in college. You ended up at PepsiCo, but yeah. an interesting journey to get there. How did that all happen? So as I mentioned earlier, my dad was in advertising. I, I did have an interest in marketing, um, not really fully knowing what it was, but but you know, I, I did watch a lot of TV as a kid, a lot of TV as a kid. Uh, I was a latchkey kid in most of my, you know, kind of from sixth grade on. And um, I liked ads. I thought they were kind of interesting and fun and that kind of stuff. But I went uh, I went home one weekend and I was watching a baseball game with my dad, fell asleep on the couch as 
you know, I'm, my nickname in college was Napper. So that gives you any indication. And, um, you know, of the, all the nicknames you can have, that's a pretty good one. And my congressman who I'd worked for, whom, whom I adored, really wonderful guy. Uh, as an aside, uh, he, he, I think, is the only congressman to die of AIDS. He died of AIDS in 1987, a, a really tragic, uh, but wonderful, uh, tragic story, a wonderful man. And I went to a fundraiser for him in 1985. And again, I wasn't going to go, but I, my father encouraged me to go. And so I went downtown and I'm getting a beer at a keg and a guy walks up and we start talking and he's running for board of finance in my hometown of Stanford, Connecticut. And he, he says, Hey, um, what are you thinking about doing? And I told him I was interested in marketing and et cetera. And he said, well, I'll make you a deal. If you work on my campaign, I'll get you an interview with Pepsi. And it turned out his best friend had a job opening as a marketing analyst, which essentially was back then it was to take the data off the green screen terminals of IBM terminals, you know, write down a piece of paper and then go over to your IBM XT and make from the Harvard graphics program. There was this graphics program using a pen plotter. You know, you would, you would then draw the charts for the sales executive. And I loved it. I just really loved it. And I got moved from there to consumer promotions. I got moved from there to new products. And then, you know, wonderfully had two people in particular, um, John Talbot and Bruce Allenbaum, give them a name check, uh, that encouraged me to go back to business school because I really hadn't taken any business classes at Brown. Brown didn't have them really at the time. And, uh, and that was really, you know, that changed, changed my, my path. You know, when, when young people approach me and ask for career advice, I say, don't be afraid to wander a little bit because those, yeah, yeah. those serendipitous meetings that you encounter turn into stepping stones. I, I've shared this story before, but I was on a study abroad program in England and I was just randomly at a pub, hanging out, talking to a guy, didn't know him sitting next to me. And he worked for McKinsey. And I was like, what's McKinsey? <laughs> and after he overcame his dismay about somebody not actually knowing what McKinsey was. That sounds like McKinsey old school, actually. Yeah, yeah, sure. He explained to me what it was. And I said, I said, that sounds like a great place to work. And so I just, I knew that name. I'd never heard it before I went home and I decided I want to work there. And that's actually the job that I got out of undergrad. I would have never even known about that, let alone interview, had I not had that chance encounter. And um, I, I think that throwing yourself into environments where you're meeting new people, talking, learning, exploring, yeah. that just opens up so many doors. Totally. And and um, yeah, and and then I think the other part to follow your line is then, you know, choosing what door then walk through and yeah. or even look into, you know, look into the hallway, if you will, and try to understand. And I, I found to to your earlier point, the the mix of those doors and the serendipity of which they show up is 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 a huge part of careers and i think you know a little bit to to counter the linkedin culture is you know these these lives and jobs and careers are not as linear as they uh show up in in uh on a website yeah absolutely let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll jump back into the conversation Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. All right. So uh, PepsiCo, you had a couple of great experiences. Just the other day, I was drinking a bottle of Aquafina. Why, thank you. And Gary, I thought of you. <laughs> <laughs> 
my little brother in sixth grade came up with this amazing idea, which he called bottled water. And we all thought he was just so crazy to yeah. actually propose that at yeah. some point people would want to buy water in a bottle. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you, you actually uh, put your name on uh, not, not figuratively, not literally on bottled yeah. water with Aquafina. Tell us about that story. It was um, well, I think the thing that I've, I've talked about this when I do some presentations at time to time, because a lot of it has to do with your relationship with your boss. And, and what happened was I was working at the time at new products at Pepsi. So by this time I'd gone to grad school, I'd gone to McKinsey for four years at McKinsey, met my uh, now wife, who was a client. And then in 1993, you know, after being McKinsey for four years, I went, went back to Pepsi. And one of the things I was working on relatively early was Brian Sweetie, who was the VP of marketing at the time, eventually became the CMO at, at Pepsi. And actually, it was one of the two people who brought me to eBay. But Brian, as a VP, had run into Howard Schultz at a conference and they started talking about making uh, ready-to-drink products with the Starbucks name, which we can come back to. But I, so I was, I was working on that, trying to start that JV. You know, those things take time, and and I didn't have enough going on. And I went into my boss one day, uh, Bill Cobb, uh, and said to Bill, "Hey, I'm kind of bored. I I need more to do." And and that's pretty much what I said, actually. And and I worked <laughs> for him, you know, for for about a year and a half at that point, or maybe a year. And had a good enough relationship where I felt comfortable saying that. And also he wouldn't hear that and think, hey, Briggs, you know, would you actually do what I asked you to do? And what had happened was he had just come out of a meeting the second time he'd come out of a meeting with Craig Weatherup, who was the president of, of Pepsi-Cola at the time. And they were pitching to Craig, buying up a bunch of spring water businesses. So buying up actually these other companies and brands. And Craig's kept saying, uh, had said for the second time, you know, we process 3 billion gallons of water a year. Why can't we sell that? And I happened to walk into Bill after he'd had this meeting with Craig. And he said, I need you to figure this out because I can't go in a third time and have Craig say, why can't we sell this? So um, we went, went around and did a bunch of research. And this was in 94. And as it turned out, what people were doing is they were buying Evian as an example, at the C store, the convenience store, and they would drink the Evian and then they would go to the tap and they'd fill up the bottle with a tap because Evian's so goddamn expensive. They basically were buying, you know, a one-use container and then refilling it. And they knew yeah. that that wasn't particularly great. And what people essentially said through the research was, I would love another product in the door, as you say, in the business, in the, in the convenience store, refrigerator door, in the door that I can trust. And the short version of the research was uh, when people, you have to then reveal if this were to come from Pepsi, would you be okay with that? Because you, you can't hide that fact. You know, if you try to hide that fact, then it's found out, you know, people will make you pay. <laughs> so what people basically said was, and I'll just put it as straight as it came through the research was Pepsi wouldn't up Pepsi for water was essentially what people were saying. And so we had permission essentially to go into the category with a product that would be significantly cheaper than Evian and be in the convenience store, you know, day in, day out. Because what happened was typically the second or the, the secondary or tertiary brand was something you'd never heard of, you yeah. know, in, in there. And so that was that. And then Aquafina as a name, we were going with the through the development of the of the product and the packaging, we were working with the name Atlantis. And that was the name we were going to go with. And then when we went to go file the full trademark, it turned out two co-attorneys had filed for Atlantis. 
So huh. somehow it had leaked out. And so, uh, which is kind of wild that anybody cared, but, but they did. And, and so I had to come up with another name and on a flight, uh, I basically created a word, you know, in, in, in kind of a Spanglish contraction, Aquafina. And, and it was back, I remember very vividly flying with my boss, Bill, we were flying to Northwestern where we both went to business school. We were a couple of years apart. And the plane was totally empty. It was back when you know planes were that full. And and I yelled across the the plane. It was like three three rows up and over. What do you think of Aquafina? And among other names. And uh, as I'm working on the tray table on on the flight, and he he said back, "That's stupid." And then uh, a couple of minutes later, he said, "What's that name again?" And um, and so Aquafina was born. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That's the whole story. Yeah. I love it. All right. And then you mentioned Harold Schultz as well. Another person not afraid to wander. He, mm. Uh, mm. I lived up in Seattle for a while. He started a really interesting concept. I don't think it went anywhere, but it was basically <laughs> fresh salads, juices squeezed on, on site. And yeah. you can, and you have all these juice bars now. He was doing that um, some time ago, but the way he got that idea is he was wandering around in Venice beach and some guy was uh, squeezing juice. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was the founder of Fresh Samantha. Oh, and sure. He, and he said, the corporate guys took my company from me. And now I'm just a bomb in Venice squeezing juice. <laughs> and so Howard said, well, come and work for me and you can do whatever you want. But, you know, he was open to all these different ideas. And Very uh, much. yeah, yeah. Some I mean, work, I, some didn't. Yes. Yeah, so I believe through Maveron, who's, which is his investment firm, I think he was an early investor in Jamba Juice, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, he was incredible to work with. When I started working with them, they, you know, Starbucks was had yet to move to the US East Coast. They had about 250 stores. They were still in their original roasting plant for part of the time that we worked together uh, before they moved into the old Sears Roebuck building, if as you know, in uh in Seattle. I was really impressed with Howard. I, you know, I talked to him every couple of years still. And and to to tell a little bit more about, you know, something I worked on, I we eventually did sign this joint venture. It became the North American Coffee Partnership. Which, if you see Starbucks product products in a bottle or can, those are actually Pepsi JV products. Um, he was incredible to work with. When we signed the JV, I had been working on it for a year and a half to get it signed, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be the general manager of it. And I got passed over to be the general manager. Uh, I didn't get the job. I was really pissed off. You know, I was relatively young, but 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 uh, you know, in a hurry. <laughs> Fire in and, the belly. Yeah. And he was the only person who sat me down and told me why. Like my own bosses at Pepsi weren't as forthright as Howard was. And I always appreciated that, that he he gave me the feedback, which was I was too young. And and the fact of the matter was they were a small company at the time. Pepsi was very big compared to them. And he was really worried about how it was going to go. And he needed somebody in the company who had more seniority to represent Starbucks in the hallways. And I, I appreciate the fact that he was just so, so forthright. And every time I talk to him still, he's like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's terrific. So Howard's instincts are good. They're not always right though. <laughs> I think you had to learn that the hard way. I did. I did. Uh, he's, he, he had this idea. You talked about wandering around. One of the things he, other products he, he had a strong belief on from wandering around was a carbonated coffee drink. And he writes about this in one of his books, but he, he talks about two of the biggest product failures he was ever part of at Starbucks was uh, a magazine he tried to do with 
Time Warner called Joe. And then this other product called Mazagran, which I was the brand manager on. And he, he was insistent that we ought to do this product. And of note, um, you know, we, 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 we put a lot into it in terms of like the, the, the research and, um, and in particular, one of the things we did was a home use test called a HUT is the, the acronym. Um, and when we did the home use test, it was the worst performing home use test Pepsi had done to that time. And we presented it to Howard. I remember being in this conference room, Georgette was his admin and we go in, you know, Georgette lets us into his conference room. We're sitting there. It's myself and my, my boss, Anne, uh, who was the general manager. And as we present it, uh, the, it's so bad. And Howard starts, the vein in his forehead starts to show up and he starts saying under his breath, the hut, the hut. <laughs> keep saying <laughs> to which Anne is looking at me, you know, kind of as if to say, make him, please make him stop. This is very uncomfortable. <laughs> and um, he called up Craig Weatherup, who, who I mentioned earlier is the president of Pepsi and said, you know, if I listened to research like this, we never would have had Starbucks. People call it Charbucks. And I really believe in this product. And Craig, to, to his credit, said, well, obviously you believe in this. We're early in our JV. I'll give you this one. Uh, as long as you let me have the next one, the next decision. And when we took it into test market in Santa Monica, by the way, a great place to have a test market. When we were in the market for about three weeks and it was, a, it was totally a failure. And we had a board meeting, a JV board meeting. And Howard just said, you know what? I was wrong. Um, but you know, we have this product we just introduced on the East Coast in our stores called Frappuccino. Why don't we put that in a bottle? And uh, Craig was like, that's a good idea. And we had been looking at milkshake-like products for Pepsi, and it was just perfect. So that's that's been a major hit, but it came out of a failure called Mazagran. Yeah. That's Gary Briggs, former CMO of Facebook. When we come back, Gary talks about why he decided to walk away from the biggest job offer of his life and how that decision set the stage for a range of career opportunities he'd never dreamed of. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Gary Briggs, former CMO of Facebook. Most rising marketers wouldn't think twice about accepting an offer to become CMO of one of the most storied brands in the country. Gary may have even surprised himself when he turned down an offer to take the top marketing spot at Wrigley's in Chicago. But in hindsight, it was the right move made for the right reasons. Let's get back to the discussion. All right. So another serendipitous move in your career, you landed at eBay. Yeah. That was almost the job that didn't happen. How, how did you arrive at that spot? Well, I had worked for these two, two guys I mentioned, Brian Sweetie and Bill Cobb at, at Pepsi. Both of them were pretty early at eBay, Brian in particular. Um. And they had, Brian had called me when he'd first, he called a number of people who had worked with it at Pepsi to join him at eBay. And I, my wife, Catherine and I uh, didn't want to move to California, which now is obviously uh, beyond iron ironic as I sit here in California talking to you. But um, we, we just didn't, we liked the East coast. And in particular, we liked Chicago where we'd both go gone to business school. And I had done a startup and it went from three people to 180 people and then back down again. We, we ended up selling off in piece parts. Part of it we sold to Amazon, but for not a lot of money. And it was 2001, late 2001, I'm looking for a job. 
and very much wanted to stay in Chicago. And I got turned down by a bunch of companies. I got turned down by Sears. Um, I got turned down, I think, by Motorola, which is kind of funny because I ended up uh, involved with Motorola later through Google. And I'm interviewing with Wrigley. I'm, I have this great opportunity to go be the chief marketing officer at Wrigley, which, you know, given my career to that point, to be the CMO of Wrigley was a pretty good gig. And, you know, allow us to stay in Chicago, obviously a very named Chicago company. And, you know, talk about serendipity. I interviewed with this guy twice, went really well. I'm now back a third time to just talk with him about how we were going to work together. And, you know, and he was asking about comp and all sorts of things to that an offer was going to come, you know, very, all the signals were there, but it was late in the day. Uh, we met around 530 at the end of his work day. And I wasn't working very much at the time because we were winding down the startup and selling off the furniture and stuff, literally. And around 6.30, 6.45, the phone rings and it's his son. And he has missed his train going from suburban Chicago to downtown to meet his father. And his dad starts screaming at him. Mm. And I realized, oh, Jesus, this is the guy I'm going to work for, not the guy who's been nice to me the last two and a half times. And I quietly withdrew three days later. I called the search firm and said I had a change of change of heart. I'm going to look at other things on the West Coast. And that's how I, I mean, that's how I ended up uh, going out to to talk to eBay because I I ended up that phone rang. And and if I look, I mean, this is not lost. I mean, I think that one of the things that I think is just so important how random all this is. I mean, you know, if if I had taken that job, I probably wouldn't have lasted very long. Working as we talked about earlier for somebody who's who's a screamer, um, and so I would have been nearly forty, and had you know a four year job, a four year job, a two year job, a two year job, and a one year job, and that's not good. Um, and and because that phone rang at the time, the phone rang, I do- dodged that and and ended up you know going out to California, which was transformative. Yeah, yeah. you know, you talk about doors different doors opening and choosing the right doors to go through. So many times I hear people say, I did the thing that got me excited. I did the thing that felt right. And I think that's the common denominator. They're the ones that choose for themselves as as opposed to allowing life to choose for them. It's so fascinating for you. You knew who you wanted to work with for, you knew who you didn't want to work for. And you had the confidence to say, Great job, but um, that's not the that's not the guy I want to be working for. Yeah, but I've still gotten it wrong. Like, I mean, if yeah. flash forward years later, I got it wrong again. Like, I I, I would say I keep relearning the same lesson. So, if, you know, there, <laughs> there's a there's <laughs> there's a wonderful um, uh, as an aside. There's this website called Despair.com, which is sarc- has sarcastic versions of the uh, posters you see all the time with like teamwork and and those kinds of things. But there's one of the ones that, which by the way, is worth checking out because I find it, their stuff hilarious. Um, and one of the posters despair.com has is, is of a ship, which it's with its stern, its butt up in the air because it's a cargo ship, it's sinking. Uh-huh. And the, the motivational poster says mistakes. Could it be that your entire life is meant to serve as a warning to others? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way I think about some of these stories is like, you know, it's, there's there's cups and sometimes it's just good to share those so people really understand where the mistakes are. Yeah, you know, thinking about bad career moves. Actually, this is one that didn't impact me directly, but I remember it was 1990. 
six. I was up in Seattle and my little brother comes home and he, he was uh, still in college. He said, I got this summer job. And I said, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, I'm packing books. I said, packing books. I said, yeah, I'm packing books. We all go to a warehouse and the orders come in and we pack the books. And of course it was Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, how does that work? People get on the internet and order a book. Oh, you got to get out of there fast. And so, you know, of course my little brother listens to me. And uh, leave, yeah. How's that Amazon. going? How's and that going? Fortunately for my brother, he's been very successful, started okay. his own business and uh, did very well with it. Um, yeah. He likes to say that he's one of the few people that got a second chance, but yeah. Yeah. I think maybe, uh, maybe fate was smiling on him and, and, uh, recognizing that he got some bad advice, but, uh, yeah, he, he yeah. landed on his feet. No. Yeah. I've, 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 I've certainly given myself bad advice from, from time to time, just to make it very quick. I had a similar thing happen in 1988 where I, I was in looking for a summer job for business school. And I pursued this little small software company in Seattle for a summer job and ended up getting an offer. And I also interviewed with BCG. I was paying my way through business school and the small little uh, software company was going to pay me about half for the summer that BCG was going to pay me. And I was paying my way through school. So I, I, and, and when I went out now, we live outside Seattle as well. And, and it was also hilarious because, you know, I would go interview there in February and it's raining and it's dark at four o'clock. And I thought, Oh Jesus, like, I don't want to necessarily be here. It was Microsoft and uh, <laughs> they were going to give me 30,000 stock options. I'm in business school and I didn't know really what a stock option was worth. So I, I needed cash. So I, so I didn't take it, but you know, that, that and you can go look it up on, on the stock ticker, but <laughs> a 30, 30,000 options in 1988 Microsoft stock was worth something. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you were at eBay during the heyday and then also, you know, uh, as eBay started to decline, yep. but from yep. there you went to Facebook and no, I, I went to Facebook, but not for a while. I, I, I went to, I left eBay in 08, ran a startup. Uh, okay. For a little bit, and then I went to Google for three years, and then Facebook. Okay, got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How, how did you make the Facebook connection? Through Cheryl Sandberg. Uh, uh, when I was early at eBay, she was early at Google. I think she joined Google in '03, if I remember correctly. I may have it quite wrong. She'll she'll correct me. But um, and then when I was at eBay Inc. Uh, for part of that time, I ran marketing for PayPal. Then one of the guys on my PayPal team was early at Facebook. So I actually met Mark Zuckerberg. I met Mark in 2007, and then Cheryl joined in 2008. And the story on that is I had a six-year interview process with Facebook. That's that's the short <laughs> <laughs> because I met with Mark, and he essentially said, "I'm not really ready to hire someone like you." And then Cheryl started in 08, and and I knew her through mutual friends in particular, as uh, where I would see her. I'd see her socially from time to time. And, uh, and Dave, her, her husband at the time was a wonderful guy. And, um, so you were buying a lot of Google AdWords at eBay then. That's exactly it, right. That's yeah. exactly right. And when, when things went, were, were hard between eBay and Google, one of the people I would talk to would be Cheryl, uh, who's, you know, obviously scaling their, their small business, uh, or ops, you know, small business ops and, and did an extraordinary job. So that was, that was the, um, that was the entree. And then, you know, to flash all the way forward, the way I got to Facebook as I was at Google, I went to Motorola when Google bought Motorola. I did not have a particularly good time there, which I'd rather not go into a lot of detail about. Um, had a difficult boss and uh, ran into Cheryl at a friend's house on a Saturday night. 
And she asked me how it was going. And I said, I was miserable. And she said, good. So, um, that's, that's how I ended up at, at Facebook. It, it, they had approached me when I first joined Google in 10, um, cause they were, you know, the company had grown to the point where, you know, Mark in 2008, when Cheryl joined, didn't want to really scale up the marketing department because they had such what's called technical debt. They, they had, you know, notwithstanding they had a big outage yesterday, but they were trying to, uh, build up their tech team. And he just didn't want to bring in more senior people who were non-tech, non-product. Uh, but by 10, they, they called me about a, a job and, and I turned it down because I was very happy at Google and really love working for Lorraine Tuhill, who's still the CMO there. Um, but it so happened when I went to Motorola, I, I didn't really have a path back to Google. And so then I went to Facebook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were definitely there during some interesting times. Uh, there was, uh, you know, in the earlier days, f- Facebook could do no wrong. And then yeah. it became this global juggernaut. Uh, you were there through the uh, 2016 uh, election controversy. I think totally. just before you left, Cambridge Analytica hit. Right. What was it like to be on the inside during that time? Well, we knew that that uh, that we were never as good as people said and never as bad as people said. But I remember in particular, to take one point in time is while I was there, we bought WhatsApp, which, you know, for the stated price of 19 billion, I think it was probably 22 or so by the time the deal closed, given the nature of the transaction. And Wall Street loved it. And Mark, I remember in a small meeting said, look, you know, we can do this now and Wall Street will be supportive. Um, You know, lots of other companies other times will try to make a $22 billion acquisition of a company that has no revenue by the way. Uh, and, or, you know, it was, it was de minimis uh, revenue and everybody would think it was desperate and, and a mistake. So, you know, we have to be ready for that too. So I think he's, he's always, Mark has always been pretty sober about that wave of, of uh, adulation and, and, um, and admonition, if you will. And, uh, and we're, you know, Facebook is certainly in the admonition phase now. Yeah. When uh, when the Russian uh, controversy hit, what was your playbook just from a crisis communication perspective for responding to that? Well, the, the first uh, bit of work, which which is a, a big contrast from what happened with CA, Cambridge Analytica, CA is what we call it internally, um, which we can talk about in a bit, was figuring out what is truth. You know, in a lot of times in crisis, you have to figure out what is truth fast. Uh, and and because if you respond or or base your argument in 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 def- in your own defense on falsehood, um, that you know obviously then gets found out. It's 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 uh, you know crushing. And we had to figure out what what happened. Why did it happen? Uh, is it still happening? You know, can it happen again? And those are all things that logically people will ask. And that's the whole thing for me in crisis management is. You have to get yourself ahead to the next question. I think you know speed matters a ton, which we can talk about as it relates to Cambridge Analytica in a bit. Speed matters. Um, understanding what what truth is fully matters, and how you're going to respond to to your role in that truth, uh, and then a- answering in advance the next logical question. Because if if you get asked that and you don't have an, an answer, then you you look like you don't know what you're doing, or worse, uh, you know that you're you're trying to hide something. And, and that's what happened with Russian ads. I mean, Alex Stamos, who, who's 
now teaches at Stanford and also is very involved with Chris Krebs. They have a firm together, Chris Krebs, who, who also you know, public official, ex-Microsoft guy who was very involved in the 2020 election, uh, running a cybersecurity for, uh, for I think, DOJ, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, those those are all things to figure out where Alex played a you know significant role in helping us figure out what happened with Russian ads and what does it mean. And, to, and a little bit get ahead of, of your question, what we found from consumers in the case of Russian ads was people essentially played back to us, that was really bad. I'm upset about it, but that didn't affect me because mm-hmm. uh, what people were essentially saying is I would not be duped by a Russian ad. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I if it were in my feed, I wouldn't have uh, had, a, had had done anything. So we we certainly had a, a lot of issues around Russian ads, but they ended up being more systems issues, if you will, than consumer issues. Although what it did was it loaded the barrel of bile that then really came home to to uh, to us at uh, at Facebook in in Cambridge Analytica, which happened essentially, you know. Nine months later, is how yeah. to think about it. And and personally, at the time, I I had come close to leaving uh, in the middle of seventeen, uh, and Cheryl asked me to not leave with in the middle of Russian ads, and so I ended up resigning in January of eighteen, and then Cambridge Analytica was in March of eighteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was already in the middle of finding my replacement by the time. A guy named Antonio Lucio, a wonderful marketer, who ended up replacing me in in the fall of eighteen. But but then I was there, um, yeah, during Cambridge Analytica, which was in March of that year. So you mentioned there was a difference in terms of the way that people perceived those two crises. What made CA different and and so much more uh, resonate so much more with the American population? The the particular thing with Cambridge Analytica is because of the the fact that a number of people had taken. Taken a personality test, that the the nature of how Facebook was sharing data with publishers at the time was uh, you could get the the corpus of data of friends of friends. Um, And so, for example, if I had taken the personality test and you and I are Facebook friends, your data would have been ported over to the researcher along with my data. And you were really upset by the fact that that happened. That, that, that's the short of it is that people felt that it was a, um, and, and understandably so, that it was a misuse of their information for purposes they had fully not agreed to and did not want. Uh, and it took it as a, a betrayal of trust. And, and it had a disastrous impact on, on Facebook's trust at the time. We, we were doing uh, you know, better on, on trust and, and we were tracking that quite closely in our brand measures, had made a lot of progress in building that up over the you know four or so years, five years I was there, uh, I guess four, yeah, five years at the time. And, and we lost, I'd say, four years of trust to benefit in four weeks. It, it was, uh, and, and I, you know, the company has, has hard, had a hard time recovering from that since. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, the testimony that's going on right now before Congress and just the, the documents that were leaked. It's been fascinating to just follow the public sentiment, how it's just 180 degrees different than where it was a Mm. decade ago. Mm -hmm. I heard a great analogy, though. Someone tried to label Facebook as big tobacco. It's just bad, bad, bad. Mark Benioff from Salesforce, the CEO, founder and CEO of Salesforce, was the first one to really 
uh, putting that out. one, but yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, the response was, it's more like the auto industry. I mean, we've, we've been driving for over a century now. And when cars came out, they were, they were lethal, but they were also huge benefits that people recognize. Mm. We now have the benefit of a century of technological innovation, of regulation, of understanding the pros and the cons. You can now put your child in a car that literally will drive itself. And they're probably safer in that car than they are walking down the street. Mm-hmm. If you think about social media, the platform itself is, you know, a, a decade plus old um, versus a century. Imagine yep. the yep. the advancements that we'll make over time. And these are, you know, these are the travails that we're working through right now. Yeah. My, my concern is that we don't have that much time. You know, it's going to have a century. Yeah. This is moving very, very quickly. Uh, I, I worry a lot about the anger in society and, um, and how there's a lot of mechanisms to, to profit from anger. I, I think that's true for cable news. It's, it's absolutely true from my experience working in politics, because that's what raises money in politics. Uh, and, and, and clearly, I think what um, Haugen, you know, the woman who's the researcher, Haugen, Francis Haugen is saying is, there is there's benefit from engagement from from anger that that that's that's part of it. I think we we know that, mm-hmm. and and that's I think what is corrosive. It's not it's not unique to Facebook Inc. Uh, it's it's most acute with Facebook Inc. because how many people use the the platform and services? You know whether it be Instagram or WhatsApp or or Facebook or what we call the blue app when I when I work there. And I think that's the biggest issue for us as a society is is the the, the degree to which we allow anger uh, to manifest and and really corrode uh, how we listen to one another and how we see each other. Um, so, is it unique to Facebook? No. Uh, is it incumbent on Facebook to figure out uh, what to do about this? Absolutely, and yeah. and I think. You know, when I was there, we we were calling for for regulation. I do think there needs to be regulation, and also I think there also, you know, one of the most active arguments inside Facebook um, is the role of the nature of speech, which is an important important debate to have of what speech is permitted um, and to what degree, uh, you know, people can can say things that are that might be viewed as others as offensive. I think one of the things that I was was frustrated about when I was there is I think Trump and other politicians were allowed a set of rules that were different than what you or I would have. And I don't think that's a good idea. I, I don't think just because someone's in the news that they are allowed to should be allowed to say things that um, that from a policy standpoint would not be permitted by a by a normal citizen. I, I just don't think that's a healthy in a democracy to uh, to perpetuate that. And I do think that that's part of the issue that uh, Facebook has has dealt with and continues to deal with. Towards the latter part of your career, this experience that you'd had in the private sector and then moving to the public sector, they started to intertwine again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You you ended up working on the Bloomberg campaign. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you joined that team and and the role that you played there? Sure. I um uh when I when I after the 2016 election, I, I had actually reached out to, I'd met Hillary Clinton at one point and, and offered to help on her campaign. And long story short, was was rebuffed by a lot of the communications people around her at the time. Uh, and 
with the outcome in, in 16, I was really worried about um, what was happening in the country and then Trump's as an as like exhibit A of it. And yeah, I mean, to what you've asked about, I decided to kind of go back to where I started, which was to do something in politics. I, I briefly went to work for Steve Bullock, who the, was the governor of Montana, who briefly ran for president. I really like Steve a lot. I think one of the things that's interesting in him, which I, I'm going to figure out how to stay involved in, is, is he's very involved in, in trying to end the dark money in, in our political system, which I, I particularly see as a corrosion uh, of our society. But um, I, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, going very far in the, in the campaign. And I got approached by two people close to Mike Bloomberg to uh, try to start a digital agency for Mike. And at the time, Mike was not going to run for president. Actually, the reason we started Hawkfish, I started with two other people, one of whom still works for Mike, uh, was to help the Democrats who, who ironically, even though tech companies are considered to be liberal, the Dems are far behind, I think still far behind the Republicans in their data infrastructure. Uh, and data capabilities, particularly as it relates to digital. And so we went and started, uh, Mike backed us to go start a firm that was going to go help the eventual candidate. And in November of 19, after the November 19 election races were over, and we, we were involved in a couple of those as Hawkfish, the, the firm that we started, Mike then decided to run for president. And he, he uh, decided to run for president in large part because the polling was showing that either Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren was going to take the nomination. And if were they to get the nomination, the probability that they would lose to Trump. And uh, Biden, you know, obviously, that's lots of books written about this was was his campaign was not going particularly well. And so Mike jumped in. Um, flash forward, you know, 100 days, Mike is on a debate stage with Elizabeth Warren in Las Vegas. Uh, he gets his teeth kicked in is probably the one way to put it. And uh, he drops out of the race a couple of days, you know, a couple of weeks later, right, before, right after Super Tuesday. Uh, and then Hawkfish, we kind of went back in large part to what we were doing at the outset, which is we went to go work for the DNC, uh, Biden for president and, and some super PACs and other organizations. We were involved in a lot of the voter registration uh, for for uh, the DNC and for Biden. We, we ran the voter registration efforts in Arizona, Wisconsin and uh, Georgia. Uh, although full credit needs to go to Stacey Abrams and Cindy McCain uh, for Georgia and Arizona, but it was it was the most emotionally exhausting thing I've ever done uh, was to, to to do that, and and I'm still have a little bit of a hangover from it, although it's you know a year's past. So you're the you're the big Silicon Valley marketing executive. Did you walk in and teach those folks a thing or two about yeah. how to market digitally? No, I'd say in a way. Um, I, I mean, you're, you're, the premise of the question is totally fair, which is I had that thought. Yeah. Um, hopefully, I didn't carry myself fully that way. Although that's absolutely how people perceived me walking in was that you know that that's going to happen. And I really learned a lot about how good the political industry is at driving uh, rapid iterations in creative. They're they're really really good at that. And um, and and very tactically agile. Um, there's lots of other issues. I'm I'm really concerned, as I mentioned a second ago, about the role of money in politics and what it's what it's meaning. Um, just to give you a quick stat, there was 13 and a half billion dollars spent in the 2020 cycle, not just at the presidential, but but kind of all the all races, and about a billion dollars in fees into that industry as a result. And that's just bad. 
I just think that that's really bad. Well, uh, it's uh, it's been a fascinating journey and uh, wonderful to hear how uh, the young Rick Astley <laughs> blossomed <laughs> and became the person that you are today. As you look back across your your career and your life, for that matter, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that for you has made the biggest difference? Well, I'll, I'll give a shout out to one thing if, if you want to know more about this, because we're getting to the end, is uh, I gave a speech at my old high school called King, the King School in Stanford, Connecticut, a, a, a commencement speech in 2017 called uh, uh, Two Truths and a Lie. And, and what it's really about is love. I mean, I, I, I am very fortunate to have uh, married well, have a partner in Catherine who you know, is, is the person that has mattered most in my life. And, um, and that's really, you know, as we cover in, in what we've talked about, there's a lot of serendipity in my life, but the through line in my adult life is her. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I've learned a lot about the importance of getting love right, which we don't really talk about. And particularly as men, we're, we're not supposed to talk about. And it's actually the most important thing. There was a great article originally published in the McKinsey Quarterly written by Clayton Christensen. He he then wrote the book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And he had a fascinating observation. He taught at Harvard and he'd he'd go back to his reunions and talk about these people that had worked for decades to build these businesses. And then the day that they sold them was the best day of their life. And then the day after that was the worst day of their life because they realized that in many cases, they had given everything else away to have that business. And the conclusion he comes to is uh, those things that really matter that that remain have nothing to do with money, title, status. Um, as as you said, the the love that we have, the relationships that we build over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that just so that you know, people don't have to necessarily go watch the uh, the twelve minute uh, speech I gave. Love is love is a choice as much as a feeling. You know, it, it's very much of of who you choose to love and who you choose to have love you. And it's so important. We know we're, we're probably people who are listening to this podcast are very much driven by some measure of success having to do with, as you you know said, financial or, or some career progression or whatever it is. And, and life is just so much easier if you can uh, get love right. Yeah. Who you choose to love and also what you choose to sacrifice in exchange right. for that love. I agree. Yeah. Because it is, it is um, so much about how you will, you encourage one another and guide one another in the, in the journey of what you're going to be. Yeah. Wonderful words of wisdom, Gary. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. All right, man. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.